0: Today is a great day to worship the Lord. Today we're going to talk about one year later, part two. And there'll be a part three, I promise. But it won't be for a whole year. Just for a brief time. Think about where we were a year ago. And we don't want to necessarily rehearse everything that centers around the last year because it can be pretty depressing for most people. And over the last year, I've kind of realized that my concern is is not the moral decay of our society, although it's bad. My concern is not the political demise of our government. My concern is not even the social dilemma that we face every single day. My concern is the spiritual decline of the church. And that should be all of our concerns, as you look at what the Bible says concerning the church of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why we began last week with the verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Where Paul says in verse number 2. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband. So that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That should be all of our concern. How easy we can be led astray from the simplicity and devotion and purity to our Lord. You know, our heart is deceitful as it is. So we can become very self-deceived. But Satan is is a master deceiver. And so Paul's concern was that they not walk away or turn away or turn aside from those things in which they have learned. He's already said in chapter 10 that we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, every thought that comes across our mind needs to be held captive to the truth of the word of God. The truth is the lens by which we view everything the scripture is the, is the microscope that we put everything under. That without the word of God, we would be led astray so easily. And Paul was concerned about those in Corinth. And how easily they could be deceived. Because Satan is so crafty. As Eve herself was deceived. And that we understand the words of our Lord. You know, the lack of discernment in the church is, is huge. In fact, it's probably the biggest problem in the church today. The church's inability to discern between right from wrong, good from evil, truth from error. And it's imperative that we understand that as Paul said in Philippians, that he wants their love to abound in real knowledge And discernment. In other words, there's something about love that comes because you understand the God of love that allows you to be discerning concerning everything that comes your way. And that was Paul's concern for everyone. But to be led away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Wow. He was concerned about their love for the Lord. Their commitment to the Lord. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and die is gain. Our whole lives are about the Christ. When when you become a, a Christian, you die to self. And you embrace the Lord of the universe. You're crucified with Christ. You've died to the flesh that you might live the life of Christ. That's what Christianity is all about. And Paul was concerned that there devotion to the lord would begin to wane because it could so easily be deceived if it was that way 2000 years ago it's even more so even today and just look at the church the landscape of america and look what's taken place in the year 2020 it's given us a clearer vision as to the condition of the church the people that occupy the pews of churches all across the country. It helps us to see things from God's perspective. And that's how we want to view things. We want to see them from from God's perspective and we want him to be able to lead us in, in the truth of the Lord. The psalmist said these words in Psalm 25. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul Oh, my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed, and those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. That's our prayer. Lord, teach me your truth. If you teach me your truth, you can lead me in the right way. I can follow the path of God, but I must know the truth of God. Truth is what matters more than anything on the planet, more than anything in the universe. It's all about the truth. Our God is the God of truth. He's given us his truth. The truth is incarnate. The truth is inspired, and we are to understand that truth inside and out. And God wants us to know his truth. So that's why we're looking at the church one year later. Because over the last year, we have had the opportunity to see the church for what it really is. And as time goes on, it'll become clearer and clearer as to the condition of the church in this country and around the world. So we began last week with point number one to tell you that we understand more about our church's perception of God. It has diminished greatly. The inability to see God for who he is and what he's done. And I want to answer, why is that? And I'm going to show you why that is, but not yet. The perception has diminished our view of God. Remember remember Moses, uh, he was able to see him who is invisible. How does Moses see the invisible God? Not with the physical eye, but with the spiritual eye, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God discloses himself to those who love him. He's given us his word to disclose himself to us, that we might see him, know him, and understand him. And last week we talked to you about the holiness of God and the sovereignty of God. You know, when you understand the sovereignty of God, you understand the difference between sovereignty and providence, right? Sovereignty is that that God runs the show. Providence is how God runs the show. Sovereignty is that God is over everything. God rules over all. Psalm 115, verse number 3. Our Lord is on his throne and his sovereignty rules over all. But providence tells us exactly how he rules. So important. And so we had this opportunity as, as churches to help people understand the beauty of God's controlling power. That's why when we began last year about abolishing anxiety, point number one was? See? One person remembers. Rest in God's sovereignty. That was the point number one. And we reiterated it over and over and over again. Because you have to know that God rules over all. He's in complete control. The virus didn't catch him off guard. The virus was a part of God's providential plan. God was in charge of that. And so we need to understand exactly what God is doing. And is it not true that during this whole year, you have been put under the microscope, you understand more about your relationship with your wife, with your family, with your church. You begin to understand more about the ability to discipline your life when you don't go to work or you can't go to work or you can't go to school. Am I disciplined? Am I diligent? Am I the kind of person God wants me to be? And so God begins to unravel the things around us so that we can see who we truly are. The same is true with the church. What's happened to the church and how the church views God is crucial. The providence of God is so important because if you read the Psalms, the Psalms, every Psalm, you can read this way. Every Psalm helps you understand the person of God the providence of God, and the promises of God. If you just keep those three words in your mind whenever you read every psalm, you will see that every psalmist focuses in on one thing, the person of God. Who is he? Because the psalmist wants you to see God because the psalmist has seen God. And then he wants you to know how God works in his life. And so he begins to talk about the providence of God and the workings of God to take him where he is. And then he gives you all the promises of God about where God's going to take you. If you just remember three words when you read the Psalms, the Psalms will come alive to you like never before. But that's what the Psalms are. They are praise around the person of God, the providence of God, and the promises of God. Because that's what they praise him for. And that's what we should praise him for. Remember, way back in the book of, of Joshua, Joshua says these words to the nation of Israel He's about to die, okay? because he's about to die, he wants them to remember something. He says this, now, now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls, not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All of them have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Joshua takes them back and says, listen, everything that God said happened. Just go back and review it. Just remember all the workings of God because he told you what he was going to do and he did it. Not one good word of all the words that God has spoken ever failed. And Joshua wanted to remind the nation of the person of God, the providence of God, and the promises of God. Go back and read Exodus chapter 15 and read about the Song of Moses. Moses you'll see the same three principles. Go to the book of Revelation. Read about the song of the Lamb. Same three principles. You see, we need to understand who God is. We need to see him for who he is. And the person of God is everything. But in the church today, it seems like there has been a, a a diminished capacity to see God in charge of everything, that God is holy, that God rules over all, that God is just, God makes no mistakes, that God's in complete control of everything. If you were able as a father to do one thing this year, it would be to teach your children God's sovereignty, that God had a purpose and plan behind all the cancellations of your school year. That God had a purpose and plan as to why your father or your mother lost their job. That God had a a perfect, perfect plan that allowed us to, to stay home for as long as we did and to keep us locked up in our homes. As bad as it was to say, you know what? God had a plan behind all those things because God is sovereign. You see, as fathers, we need to be able to train our children in the ways of God to help them understand the truth of God. And and this past year, we could not have a better opportunity to teach on the person and work of God than this past year. And I would trust that you would have taken full advantage of that. Same thing for the church. The church needs to see God in every situation. And yet, somehow, the church's perception of God has diminished. If it does, point number two, the adoration of God is depreciated. In other words, no longer do we honor God. We hold him in low esteem. Listen, if you don't know who he is, you can't lift him up. You can't hold him up. You can't see him for who he is. And so all of a sudden, our adoration of God has has diminished to such a capacity that we hold him in low esteem. He's been depreciated, and that's so unfortunate because we are to adore our God. Remember what the Lord God said to to Martha when Mary would sit at the feet of the Lord in Luke chapter 10, and Martha was so busy going about doing all these activities, and she was upset that Mary would not get involved in the activities that she was in, and the Lord said, oh, Martha, Martha, you are busy with so many things, but there's one thing you need to be concerned about one thing that's needful, just one, and that's to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus and listen to what he has to say. Sit down and just adore the Christ. Adore the person and the work of the Lord Jesus to listen to his voice, to hear what he says, to adore him. But if you don't see him for who he is, you won't bow before him. So because our perception of God is diminished, then our adoration of God then is depreciated, which leads us to point number three, which was our devotion to God is disestablished. That which we thought was secure, that's what we thought was established has now been, been broken apart. Our devotion to God is, is disestablished it's been fractured because our adoration to God and our perception of God is not what it should be. So our commitment now has been weakened. Our commitment to God has has been fractured. And we need to understand that when Paul said, I am concerned that by the way Eve was deceived, you too, you citizens of Corinth would be led away from the purity and devotion to Christ. Your love for Christ will wane. It won't be what it needs to be. And that our devotion to the Lord needs to be supreme, strengthened above everything. You know, we were never made to live in isolation from one another, were we? Go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse number 18. God said to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. So God created who? Woman. And in that creation of man and woman becoming husband and wife, you begin to see the greatest picture in the world of the church. And Paul would use that relationship as a perfect example of the church. That husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church, who gave himself up for her. He sanctified her. He washed her. He cleansed her. Because in that relationship, in your marriage, the number one aspect as to why you are married is for a picture of Christ to the church. That's the number one reason you're married. If you understand that, everything else can be taken care of, everything else can be settled. Every relationship can be handled. But if you understand that your marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church, then all of a sudden, everything in the marriage just gets better and better and better because you want to portray Christ. And in that relationship is intimacy. In that relationship is oneness. And in that relationship becomes a picture of how God works within his church. We are relational beings meant not to live in isolation from one another, but to live in family, to live intimacy, one with another, loving one another, serving one another, honoring one another, holding one another accountable, right? Because the day of our Lord is approaching. So when when Paul says in Hebrews 10, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, why? Because the day of Christ is coming. As you see the day drawing near, as you see the time of Christ's appearance coming sooner and sooner and sooner, it's imperative that you come together. Absolutely imperative. Paul says this, or the writer of Hebrews says it, some say it's Paul, some say it's not, I don't know who it is, but whoever the writer of Hebrews is says, look, 2,000 years ago, we're thinking Jesus is coming, you can't afford not to be together to worship the Lord. Well, same is true now, even more so, because now we see that day approaching even sooner than ever before. It's imperative; We need one another. We need to be together. And our devotion to Christ is, is exemplified in our devotion to one another. Is it not? Sure it is. I'm devoted to you because I'm devoted to my God. That was all last week. Let me give you point number four. Point number four is this, and that is our anticipation of God is now diluted. Our anticipation of God is now diluted. In other words, it's decreased. It has become so weak because we're no longer, as Paul said in Titus 2 13 looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or, as Paul said in Philippians 3, verse number 20, longing, eagerly awaiting the appearance of our Lord Jesus. Or as he said in his last letter, in 2 Timothy 4, verse number 8, he says that there's a crown of righteousness that's awaiting all those who love his appearing. There's something about the arrival of the Messiah that motivates the believer. But think about this. Our anticipation of his return has become so weakened, so diluted, that we don't even think about him coming again. How many times in this past week did you think, oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly? When you woke up this morning, were you disappointed that you are still here? You should be because you want to be home with the Lord. There's something about the bride that cannot wait to be with the bridegroom. There's something about the bride that anticipates the union between the bride and the bridegroom. And if you're here today and you don't live in anticipation of that, you might not be a part of the bride. Let's be honest you might not be a part of the bride because as the bride, you want to be with the bridegroom. So Paul talks about the looking for the coming of the king, the longing for the coming of the king, the loving of the coming of the king. That should characterize every day of our lives. But unfortunately, it doesn't. And why is that? Because when you're satisfied with temporal things, you don't find the glories of heaven very compelling. And that's what's happened. We've become very satisfied with temporal things. But yet the riches are in heaven. The glories of heaven. I've noticed two things about true believers. And I want you to think about this. Two things that are characteristic of every true believer. Number one is that they never fear death below because of number two. They're always focused on life above. Think about that. They never fear death below Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, the fear of death has now been removed because they're always focused on the life above. Let me tell you what Paul says, Colossians chapter 3, verse number 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If you have been raised with him, if you've died to self, and you've been raised in the likeness of his resurrection just keep seeking those things which are above. Don't stop seeking them, just keep seeking them. In other words, those who have been raised are already in the process of seeking those things which are above. He just wants to remind them, just keep seeking those things. Then he says this. That's what Christ seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory Christ is our life remember John 14:6 I'm the way the truth and the life Christ gives us life listen if you're not a christian you just exist you don't have life if you're a christian you have life because Christ is life and Christ is in you that means you have Christ's life the unbeliever just Exist. they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are walking zombies, that's what they are. But once they receive Christ and embrace him, now they have true life. And Paul says, keep seeking those things which are above. Set your mind above. Why? Because you see, those who love the Lord are always focused on life above because when Christ, who is our life appears, because that's who he is. He is our life. Then we shall appear with him in glory. That's why the believer never fears death below, because he's always focused on life above. How important is that? Is Christ your life? Have you affirmed the reality of the life of Christ? Have you affirmed the reality of his his existence? Have you you truly acknowledged his rule and reign in your life? If you have, he's your life. Have you appreciated truly all of his riches? Anticipating the riches of glory, so important. But you see, if the perception of God is diminished, who he is, In what he's done, and the adoration of God then is depreciated, and our devotion to our God then is wiped away. We no longer anticipate his coming again. It's like like the downgrade of the church. It just falls, boom, 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 like domino effect. And the question comes for every one of us, Do we live in anticipation of the coming of the king? That should be the rule of thumb for every true believer. Because we're looking, longing, living in light of his return. We speak in light of his return. This is what motivates us to share Christ. He's coming again. Are you ready for his coming? It gives us the urgency to share Christ with other people. It motivates us to evangelize the lost knowing that they might not ever see the arrival of the Messiah as father, just as judge. And Paul would say, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul knew. He understood that. That the Lord was coming again. So I ask you, what do you anticipate today? Tomorrow, this week. Are you anticipating earthly things more than you're anticipating heavenly things? You know, when you're young, it's, it's difficult. My wife reminded me last night. She sat down next to me on our, on our bed. She says, honey, do you know that you're seven years from 70? Hmm. That's one way of looking at it. Seven years from 70. But I said, oh, honey, but I look like I'm 40. See? That's what you got to remember. She said, No, 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 honey, you don't. You know? I said, But 70 is heavenly. And maybe I'll be in heaven when I'm 70. Who knows? But when you look at it that way, the older you get, heaven just seems more and more near and more and more beautiful. When you're young, you're always thinking, I got my whole life in front of me. I got my whole life. I got my education, I got my marriage, got my children, got my job. I'm just gonna progress, I'm gonna live forever. And I'm sitting on the beach yesterday with my wife thinking, wow, time is short. I'm almost done. I'm closer to 100 than I am to zero. (laughs) Things are going by rapidly. And so when you think about that, we all have to think about glory than when you're younger. But the truth is still the truth. We live in anticipation of his coming again. But you can't do that if your devotion to the Lord has begun to wane. That happens because our adoration of God is so depreciated. And that's only because our perception of God has diminished as greatly as it has. And the question is, why is that? Uh, not yet, but I will tell you. I will tell you. Point number five is this. Very important. Our proclamation of God is despiritualized. Very important. Chosen my words very carefully. Our proclamation of God is despiritualized. In other words, <clears throat> There's a lot of preachers who talk about the gospel. They just don't preach the gospel. What I've noticed over the last year in many churches is that the sermons are all about, listen carefully, critical race theory. Racial and social justice issues. They're about intersectionality. They're about all those things that deal with man's relationship with man. But they're not about man's relationship with God. And the only way all those issues are ever settled is because of man's relationship with the living God. I'll never be reconciled to man unless I'm reconciled to God. I'm an enemy of God. And as long as I remain an enemy of God, i always be an enemy of man. That is, I'm always an enemy of those who don't agree with me. But once I'm no longer an enemy of God, now I am free to love and to forgive and to accept other people. Because I've been reconciled to my God. And I want them now to be reconciled to God. Because everything changes. So important to to grasp that. We need to proclaim the truth of the living God. But if you notice, churches are more concerned about man and his needs than God and his glory. We love to talk to man about man because that's why... Men come to church. They, they want to hear about themselves. They want to be, hear about how much they are loved and cared for. And, and everybody's good to them. Instead of realizing that they are, they are sinners. Separated from the living God. And are bound for an eternal hell. Unless they repent and turn from their sins and follow the living God. It's the gospel that needs to be proclaimed. The truth of the Lord that needs to be seen. And yet... So often that message isn't preached. Much to the, the downgrade of the church. Proclaiming the gospel, the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So people will hear, believe, and understand the truth of the living God. We're in a place now where pastors are asking forgiveness for their whiteness. I'm like, you just took the sovereignty of God and said, God, you have no idea what you're doing. You can't apologize and ask forgiveness for the way God made you. Do we ask the handicapped person to ask forgiveness for his being handicapped? No. Do we ask anybody by the color of their skin to ask forgiveness for the color of their skin? No. Because God made you. God formed you in the womb. God made you the way he's going to make you. I can't apologize that I'm a white person. Like you can't apologize that you're a black person. No matter what your race is, As Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 16, we regard no one according to the flesh any longer. We don't look at you according to the flesh. Why? We look at you according to what's happening on the inside, the soul of a man. That's all that matters. Is the soul of a man right with God? So we have these, these pastors bowing before congregations of, of pastors, leading their churches to bow before congregations, black congregations, bowing before them and asking them to be forgiven for their whiteness, forgiving for the, for the sins of the past. There's no place in Scripture where that's, that ever is to occur. I'm not responsible for someone's sin. When I stand before the living God, he's not going to say, well, you know, your parents did this, so uh, what are you going to do about that? I'm held accountable for my sin, not the sins of those in generations past. We have pastors, a prominent pastor in Texas just a few weeks ago, would ask forgiveness for preaching against homosexuality. Because the LGBTQ were all up in arms that this pastor was going to come preach at this conference. And just a few years earlier, he had preached against homosexuality. And now he had to ask forgiveness in order to come back and preach again. What? What a compromise. But this is a prominent pastor, and I'm sure many of you have his books in your libraries at home. But he apologized for that. That's a travesty. You see, it's not about preaching the gospel anymore, preaching the truth, telling people about the fact that they are separated from God, they are bound for an eternal judgment unless they repent of their sin and embrace the Messiah. No, it's about social justice issues. It's all about peripherals. It's all about superficial, shallow topics. We you say, they're not shallow because people are all up in arms. Yes, they are. But you have to preach the truth because the truth is what matters. You have other pastors who come along and have made all these predictions. They made predictions in 2020 that, that, that Trump would be reelected. They made prophecies. Prophecies that Trump will be reelected and then had to come back and ask forgiveness because their prophecy was wrong. Listen, they should be treated like prophets in the Old Testament. They should be stoned. <laughs> they should be stoned if you're going to make a prophecy and go on television and make the prophecy and it not come true. You should be stoned to death because that makes you a false prophet. And false prophets always center on things that really don't matter. They, they center on ritual. They center on on ceremony. They, they, They center on things like political and social justice. How many churches do you know where they emphasize political and social justice? So many of them. But they're not preaching the gospel of Christ who is the only just person who's ever lived. And we need to be made right, You need to be made just before the living God. It's the gospel we need to be preaching to people, that they might embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. But the proclamation of God is so now despiritualized, anybody who comes to church can hear a gospel message and believe it because it's so diluted. Because you don't want to offend anybody. You don't want anybody to be upset, frustrated, Leave angry. So you dilute the gospel to such an extent that anybody in the audience can believe it, can embrace it, and say, oh, I like that. The gospel offends. The gospel divides. And Christ told us that. We need to understand that. So, if our perception of God is diminished, our adoration of God will depreciate. Our devotion to God will be disestablished. Our anticipation of God will be diluted. Our proclamation of God will be despiritualized. And sixth, our foundation in God will deteriorate. Our foundation in God now is deteriorated. To such an extent that you wonder if some churches even knew the true and living God. The psalmist said it this way, Psalm 11, verse number three. The foundations, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations in God are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Remember that song about our foundation in Christ, the church's one foundation? What a beautiful hymn. Verse one goes this way. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. And there's a verse that was written, but it's not in the hymn book. In fact, it's not in any hymn today. But it was verse 3 in the original, and it goes as follows. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend. To guide, sustain, and cherish is worth her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against the foe or traitor she ever shall prevail. What did the Lord say to Peter in Caesarea Philippi? There in the northern part of the land of Israel today, it's called Banyas. They're in the base of Mount Hermon, which is all solid stone. When he asked the question, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Moses. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're really, really good and you're really, really great, but there ain't nobody saying you're God. So Christ says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes his confession. You know it well. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Christ says to him that upon this rock, he says, Peter, Petros. Upon this rock, Petra. I will build my church. Petros is a little stone, right? But a Petra is a solid, immovable rock. So says, Peter, whose name is Petros, upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the foundational element of the church. He bought her. He sacrificed himself for her. He purchased a bride for himself. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. There was a plan from eternity past that the father would send his son to purchase a bride for himself. And that's exactly what happened. He is the foundation. And Christ says to Peter, this is the foundation. This is the, your confession now becomes the foundation of the church. The foundation on which everything hinges—it's Jesus Christ, our Lord. And when it says in Acts chapter two that the—that uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter two that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that foundation is the confession that Peter made about the identity and the ministry of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. That's our foundation, and that foundation is supreme. But all of a sudden, in the churches across our country, that foundation has has deteriorated because Jesus Christ is no longer the theme. He's no longer the one put on display. He's no longer the one magnified. And they prove themselves, not to be true churches, but false churches because Jesus Christ is irrelevant to them. But to us, he's everything. He's our life. We live in anticipation of his, of his coming again. We want him to arrive as soon as possible, before the sermon's over, if need be, so that he might come to take us home to be with him. And so we, we relish the opportunity to live for Christ. He is our foundation, he's everything. That's why Christ in Matthew chapter 7 said, that these words of mine, he who hears the words that I am speaking and obeys them is like a man who builds his house upon the rock. It's a foundational statement. If you hear the words that I'm giving to you and you obey them, You are building on solid stone, on solid rock, a foundation that is immovable. But if you hear the word and you don't obey them, then you're building on on sand. And that sand will not hold. You will perish. You will fall. You will fall. And how great will be that fall when the winds come and the rain comes, the fall will be huge. Huge. And that's why over in, in Psalm 2, The Lord says these words, verse 10, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. He is speaking to every political ruler that's ever lived, every monarch that's ever lived. O kings of the earth, O judges of the earth, if you have some position of authority, no matter where it may be, in whatever government you may reign, he says these words, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. You better fear me. You better fear me. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry with you and perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. He is the rock. He is the foundation. Listen, O you judges, O you kings. Pay homage to the Son. Bow before him in submission. Honor only him. Because his wrath will soon be kindled. And if you are against him, you will perish. But how blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's what the church is to portray to everybody who lives. That we have a foundation in Christ our Lord. We settle with him and him only. And we live for him. But how is it that perception of God has so diminished. What has happened? Well, in two weeks, I will tell you. Because next week is Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to speak about the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord and celebrate the fact that he is the victor over sin, Satan, and death. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for today, the opportunity we have to worship only you. Our prayer, Lord, is that our minds be focused above and not below, that we would truly see you for who you are and worship you. We pray that we'd be a church that honors you, lives for you, whose foundation is secure and strong because of who you are. and We believe in you, whose devotion to you never wanes, never becomes weak, but it's strong because, Lord, we see you for who you are and we worship only you in spirit and in truth. At the same time, Lord, we anticipate that you're soon coming again. And because you are, we proclaim the truth of God so others will hear and believe and be a part of your glorious kingdom. Until that day, Lord, until that day when you come again, may we be found faithful.